Good morning. We're going to be looking at um, the series for the next four weeks, I think, looking at the life story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And so this morning, the topic I was given was what to do when it seems God has forgotten about you. So nothing too heavy there, is there? Um, If you're worried this is going to be too heavy, don't worry. Steve is talking about sex and seduction next week, so you'll get something a bit lighter. um, I, I guess when I read the title and I was when I was thinking about what I was going to say, my first, my first thought really was, um, I almost don't like the title in one sense, what to do when you think God has forgotten about you. Because I guess if you feel in that place, and that could be for a whole host of different reasons, that could be just feeling a bit empty, that could be going through some pain, going through some suffering, going through some anguish, that could be for a whole host of different reasons. And I guess if that is how you're feeling, you probably don't want somebody at the front giving you a load of trite, you know, five-step guide for getting out of that. You know, what do you do when God feels far away? Um, And so I hope some of the things I say this morning are not going to be trite and not going to be trying to give you a sort of five-step plan to that, really, but just to unpack some of the issues, I think, that go with that. Um, So we've just read this story of Joseph. Um, So it's that great story. It's a really famous story. You've probably heard bits of it and seen it in films and the TV and all of that sort of stuff, um, where Joseph is, you know, seen as the loved child by his father and he has these dreams and he winds his brother up, brothers up by telling them the dreams about how they're going to bow down to him, etc., etc. They want to kill him because they're so fed up with him and Joseph ends up in going out to find his brothers while they're tending their flocks out in the fields and um, the brothers eventually decide to kill him. So the brothers decide they're going to put him in a well. <laughs> Marianne's got bored of my talk already. <laughs> See you, Marianne. <laughs> um, so they decide to kill him. They're going to they're gonna stick him in a well, um, in this well with no water in the bottom of it. And then ultimately they decide to sell him to become a slave. They sell him to um, some Ishmaelites, as, as Anne read in the story. And he disappears off to Egypt. In the Jewish tradition, they think he was probably sold several times before he ended up in Egypt as well. So it's not like he was only sold once. He was probably human trafficked pretty much, you know, from one group to the next before he ended up as a slave in Egypt. And I guess as I was reading and thinking about what I was going to say this morning, I I listened to a couple of sermons and read a few commentaries about what this passage means. And a few of them went a bit like this. They said his brothers did this really evil thing and threatened to kill him and sold him into slavery. But it's all okay because this is part of God's great big plan. And this is part of God's plan and God took the evil stuff and he turned it into something great and ultimately God wanted Joseph to end up in Egypt. God wanted that to happen. It was all part of this big plan. It was all part of this plan where God was going to restore something and some of them said and there's a bit of a parallel with the life of Jesus in that. Um, Lots of sin happened. Jesus ended up being crucified on a cross as a result of that sin but it was all part of God's big plan and God was going to redeem the world through that act and they sort of made the parallel with Jesus' life in that. And I guess in some senses that's um, helpful. Um, And there might be a big metaphorical truth in in that way of looking at the story. But for me, there was a little bit of sort of panic and a bit of a worry as I sort of read the story like that, because I was thinking, if you personalize the story, if you generalize the story to mean that, that, you know, some suffering happened, but it's all okay. It was part of God's big plan. And actually God was going to restore something through the process. There was a happy ending at the end of it. You know, Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, etc., etc. We can be tempted, I think, to start putting that into practice in other people's lives and in our lives and thinking suffering's happening, but it's all okay. It's part of 
God's big plan and actually there's going to be um, some big, you know, redemption and it's going to be all okay at the end of it. And I think sometimes that, if we're not careful, that can minimize pain and suffering a bit and it can be a little bit dismissive of pain and suffering a bit. Um, let me give you an example. This is something that I feel really embarrassed for having said really to somebody in the past. Um, this was just as I'd, I guess, be- become a Christian, was filled with that sort of evangelical verve, start becoming a Christian. And um, one of my friend's parents died. And I remember, <clears throat> must have been some weeks afterwards, but maybe some months afterwards, but sitting down with this guy whose mum had died and almost trying to theologize why it happened with him and trying to say, well, well not, don't worry, but, you know, it's part of a big plan. You might not know what it is. It's okay, there's something better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And started to theologize, like, his pain and suffering that he was going through. And I can't imagine, or in fact, I've talked to him since about it, but just how unhelpful that was. In the midst of this terrible disaster in his life, I was trying to write a theology that made it all okay. And actually, I think I'd have been better placed to say this just isn't okay. This isn't the way the world is supposed to be. And so I think if we're not careful, if we read the story of Joseph like that, bad stuff happened, all part of God's great plan, good stuff will happen at the end of it, we can be tempted to start pouring that out to other people, and I don't think that's always helpful. Um, We'll come back to that, uh, that thought again in a minute. I guess as I was thinking about if you feel forgotten by God or if you feel like there's a sense that, you know, God's distant, et cetera, et cetera, there's probably a sense of anguish and pain at the heart of that, isn't there? It could be because of something that you're, something that I'm going through. It could be a sense of loss. It could be a sense of emptiness, etc., etc. But there's probably a, a sense of some pain and anguish in the middle of that. And it strikes me, it's quite interesting in this story of Joseph, that none of that is really recorded. So, you know, Joseph is abandoned by his entire family, thrown in a well. They've obviously tried to kill him. He's human trafficked four times, ends up as a slave in Egypt, and yet none of that suffering and anguish that Joseph must have gone through is really massively recorded in these opening chapters. So chapter 37, um, you know, talks about him in a well. Chapter 38 doesn't talk about him at all. Chapter 39 talks about him in Egypt and sort of carrying on with the next parts of the story. But there's no record, really, of the pain and suffering that Joseph must have gone through, having gone through that experience. Um, and so as I was um, preparing, I, I listened to some um, Rob Cast talks. I don't know if you've come across those Rob Bell talks. And he did a really great series. Um, I think there were five um, talks, which is well worth listening to because I'm going to paraphrase a bit of some of what he said, but there, there's some really fascinating stuff about the Book of Lamentations. Um, so on the Rob Cast, if, if you're interested in this, it's worth going and listening to the five um, uh, Robcast because they're, they're really great actually but about the book of Lamentations a book of Lamentations is um, in, the, you know, in the middle of the Bible in the Old Testament it's five chapters long and it's some poems really um, that were written that were written um, in that were a reflection on in 586 BC when Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Babylonians so the, the first temple, King Solomon's temple was completely obliterated by the Babylonians. This had gone on for some years. They'd installed a sort of vassal king for a bit and that didn't work out. So they laid siege to the city um, and then they just completely destroyed the place. They raped and pillaged and sent people off into slavery, etc., etc. It was just a completely disastrous time in the story of the Judean people, but also in the story of Jerusalem. And so the book of Lamentations 
is this book that's written, these poems that are written as a reflection on that event. And they are, I don't know if you've read them, but they are this great outpouring of anguish about something that's gone wrong. Let me just read you just a, a bit from the first chapter. Here you go. This is the book of Lamentations. It says, how, de- how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen amongst the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. After affliction and half labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells amongst the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she's bitter in anguish. And it goes on like that, four or five chapters of this great outpouring of anguish, I guess, about something that's happened. And you might think, well, by chapter five, there'll be a sort of happy ending at the end of this, but read you the final few verses of chapter 5. Chapter 5 says, God, why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us, Lord, that we may return renew our old de- at, re- and renew our days as of old. On the other hand, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond words. And I guess um, Rob says this in his talk, but you know, why is that book in the Bible? Why is there a book that's five chapters of this great outpouring of anguish God doesn't speak in these books. There's no record of God sticking up for himself. There's some people being angry at God. There's some people feeling forgotten by God. There's some people feeling like the bottom has fallen out of their world. Why is this in the Bible at all? And I guess one reason why it might be in the Bible is that um, lamentation, the ability to actually cry out and say, this isn't the way the world should be, is actually a healthy part of spirituality. And actually, maybe the Bible, maybe this book is in the Bible because this is a bit of a template to us or a bit of a reminder that sometimes it is okay to just say stuff is wrong. And there are these five poems there, which I think do that about that Babylonian event. And so Rob's first point in these Robcasts is that he says, lament, learning to lament, learning to cry out in anguish is something we've um, forgotten to do very well. Um, we don't leave time and space for it in our sort of rites and rituals. In our, you know, certainly in the Western world, we live in a culture of everything must be good, everything must be progress, everything must be getting better and better and better. And actually, if things are going wrong, actually bury it. And particularly in Britain, don't we, with our sort of British reserve, you know, bury all of the problems in your life. Don't talk to anybody about them. If somebody asks you how you are, I think it was Nath was saying last week, you know, just say, I know it was Dan, wasn't it, saying, you know, I'm fine, thanks, and just move on. You know, we bury problems and don't really leave space for lamenting and for actually crying out and saying something's wrong with the world. And to me, there's something strangely hopeful in doing that. Actually, if you're crying out and saying, this isn't the way I think the world should be, this isn't how I think my life was supposed to go, I feel this great emptiness, I feel sadness or anguish or pain, actually there's something quite hopeful in that, in that you're at least recognising that it's not the way it should be, and there's something that you would prefer it would be like, and you're at least saying, I don't think this is right now, but I I sort of hope it is different in the future. There's something quite hopeful in the act of lamenting. Rob says that um, healthy spirituality is honest spirituality, and spirituality that is just prepared to be honest about how I'm feeling. There are no questions that are off the table. There are no things that I can't 
say if that's how I'm feeling. But it goes further than just being um, the sort of expression of anguish, the expression of pain. Into naming what's wrong, naming the things that are wrong, shining a light on the things that are wrong in order that we can perhaps offer healing, in order that there can perhaps be a place of healing for stuff. Um, and it, it got me on to thinking about Jesus on the cross. And you know, there's that famous bit that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you probably know that he, he's referencing a psalm, Psalm 22. Um, and so there's a whole story you could go into there about what he meant by referencing that psalm. But I think there's also a sense of Jesus lamenting on the cross, saying this isn't the way the world was supposed to be, just crying out and saying this isn't right. This isn't how it was supposed to go. The, the, the sins of the people that have led me to be crucified on the cross wasn't supposed to be the template. And there's that sense of lament and crying out in order that there can be healing for the entire world, as it turns out, in, in, in what happened with Jesus on the cross. Doubt and faith go together. Steve says this all the time, doesn't he? But if we're thinking God is far away, um, if we're thinking God's forgotten us, that sense of doubt is something we're allowed to lament about. It's something we're allowed to express out loud. It's something we're allowed to talk about. Actually, it's not an antithesis to faith. It's not if I'm doubting, that means I'm not a faithful person. It's an actual essential part of being a Christian. It's an essential part of a healthy spirituality to be able to express doubt and pain and lament about it. Here's this um, fantastic quote by a lady called um, Kathleen O'Connor. And she's written a book about lamentations. It says this, Lamentations name... Lamenting names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, what keeps human beings from thriving in all of their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, open them up to grief and anger, and make them visible for remedy. In its complaint and anger and grief, lamentation protests the conditions that prevent human thriving. And in its resistance, lamentations prepare the way for healing. It's about naming, putting a spotlight on the things that are wrong, the things that are not the way we want them to be in order that we open up a space for healing. And there's something, I think, courageous in doing it too. Um, Rob talks about this, that actually sometimes if you do start being healthy in your spirituality and being able to name those things that are not the way they should be and being able to express that stuff, actually it can sometimes put you at odds with other people. So it can sometimes put you at odds with your church community or at odds with your family community or with your partner or whatever that looks like. And it, because, you know, um, communities often have a bit of a code. These are the things we're allowed to talk about. These are the things that we never talk about. Um, and sometimes being more healthy in your spirituality and being able to just express what's really going on inside can sometimes put you at odds with that code. And so for us, I think, as a church community, what does that mean for us? How do we create a space here together where all things are expressible? If it's going on inside, we're allowed to talk about it. Doubt is a fundamental part of who we are as a congregation of people. How do we hold a space that allows people to be able to express that stuff and not have these are the things we talk about and these are the things we don't talk about? First point is, is that, really, that in the midst of pain, in the midst of feeling empty, in the midst of feeling distant from God, it is okay for us to lament and express that stuff. It is okay, in fact, it's healthy for us to actually just cry out and say, this stuff is wrong, this is not the way I expected it to be, this is not how I think the pattern for life 
is it's okay. The second thing is, if we're going to do that more, if we build that into the pattern of life more, um, in some you know, synagogues and Jewish traditions, they actually build it into their calendar of stuff they do. So during the Jewish year, people will sit down and there'll be you know, times when they're together where they'll just lament the stuff that's gone wrong that year. They'll talk about the stuff that wasn't the way they expected it. It's actually built into the pattern of who they are as a people. But if we do that a bit more, we've then got to be careful about how we respond to others that are doing it. Have you ever had the, I, I certainly had this, but the experience where you go to talk to somebody about something that's gone disastrously wrong or you're you know, frustrated or you're upset or whatever it is and you sort of unburden in emotive language about what's happened and the response you get is, well, have you tried these three things? And actually, I, I know you thought that, but... Um, you know, have you thought about it from their perspective? And you know what I would do? I would do this and then this and then this. And we go straight into analysis of the problem and problem solving. Um, and actually, sometimes that just isn't the most helpful starting place. Um, I think in our culture, we're super driven to problem solving all the time. We're super driven to analysis of stuff. And well, if it's broken, how do we fix it? All of that sort of stuff. And actually, I think a lot of the time when people are lamenting, they're actually saying not will you solve my problem for me, but are you prepared to just sit with me in the midst of this? Are you prepared to just sit with me in the midst of feeling forgotten from God? Are you prepared to just sit with me in the midst of this pain, this suffering, this anguish I've got? And not, will you immediately jump into solving my problems? Um, there's a Jewish practice, again, which is that sitting with people at times when people have died or when there's something terrible going on, there's an actual Jewish practice where people would just go and sit with that family or with that person. They're not there to really even speak necessarily. They're just there to sit alongside people as they go through that. And silence is okay. So I'd sort of talked about expressing anguish and expressing lament, but some of that can be silence. It doesn't need to be words the whole time. Um, in, this, in this story of lamentations, in the poem, there are actually three different voices in the poem. There's a narrator and then there are two other people that speak. There's a, a man and a woman. And in the first chapter, the narrator goes on with that whole list of this terrible things happened. We've been crushed. The Babylonians have destroyed our city. We, you know, all of that stuff. And then in the middle of it, you just get this voice of a woman in the middle of it that just says, God, look and see my anguish. Look at my anguish. And that's it. Just one sentence. And then the narrator goes on a bit more. And then the woman says again, look at my anguish. And then there's a bit more narration. And then finally, the woman says, look and see my anguish, God, and unpacks it in much more detail. And you get this sense in the poem of, I'm trying to express myself, but actually I can't at the moment. And I'm trying again, but I can't at the moment. And eventually this almost unburdening of everything that's gone on and the anguish this person feels. Silence is sometimes okay. When we sit with people... It takes time for people to unpack some of this stuff, to unpack anguish, to unpack that feeling of emptiness sometimes. That's all okay, and actually we need to leave space for that. I think when we're expressing lament, when we're express, expressing distance from God, when we're expressing some of that painful stuff, we really just want to be seen and acknowledged in the first instance. We want somebody to say, yeah, I get it. It's awful, isn't it? We don't want somebody to theologize it. We don't want somebody to solve it. We don't necessarily want anything to happen right now. We just want to be able to express it so that there is a place for healing in the future. Um, the other practical bit of advice, I guess, is 
and I do this all the time, but being careful not to minimize people's you know, pain and suffering in, in those moments. You know, when somebody says to you, this terrible thing's happened, and you say back, well, that is terrible, but at least it's not this, and you immediately have just minimized what's going on. Um, and we all do that all the time, don't we? And everybody lives with that duality of knowing that I'm feeling this really intense pain or irritation or frustration or whatever, and to me it feels like the worst thing in the world. And they live with the duality of also knowing that thousands of other people have gone through that type of problem and it's not unique at all. And everybody lives with that tension of, to me it feels like that, but I also know it has gone on in other people's lives. But to you it feels real, doesn't it? And so we ought to be careful not to minimize stuff. Here's another great quote. Um, This is from Peter Rollins. Pete Rollins. Contrary to what people often think, the key to easing people's suffering is not offering some insidious theodicy. By that he means not trying to theologize, you know, people's suffering. But in allowing a place for people to mourn and to meet others who know what it is to be burned by that black sun. This is not about providing an answer, but rather offering a site where we can speak our suffering. This may seem a little depressing, but such spaces are really spaces of liberation and light. This may seem a little depressing, but such spaces are really spaces of liberation and light. How do we hold spaces in our community here that are spaces of liberation and light, that allow that opportunity, that place for expressing some of that anguish and and sometimes distance from God, as we're talking about? Third thing to say is, um, in this lamentation poem, there's a whole chunk of it which is about um, the narrator saying, Jerusalem, Judah brought some of this on itself. Um, the backstory to that is, you know, the Jewish people were, you know, supposedly living out this covenant relationship that had been given to Abraham to bless the whole world. They were supposed to be the people that weren't tribal, the people that weren't violent, the people that were trying to be generous, the people that were trying to offer mercy and grace to people. And this story records a sense of we didn't quite get that right, did we? We didn't quite get that right. As a, as a people, we didn't quite get that right. We brought some of this on ourselves. So there's the exile of people being sent off to Babylon, but there's also the exile of we didn't live out our story properly, did we? We weren't the people we were supposed to be. And in, in the book of Lamentations, there's that sort of reflection on, self-reflection on, were we the people we set out to be? Did we really live the way we were supposed to live? Did Jerusalem actually reflect this great covenant to bless the whole world and to be the people of grace and mercy. And I think the answer in Lamentations is no, we didn't always do that. And so there's this sense of self-reflection built in to Lamentations. Now, it is worth saying that if you're feeling in a place of distance from God or pain or anguish or suffering, sometimes that just happens, doesn't it? And it's of none of our doing at all. It's not something we've done. That's just the position we've ended up in. And that is really truly terrible, you know, um, and we should lament that when it happens. On the other hand, sometimes we end up in places of suffering and pain, and actually a really good question is, am I personally doing anything that's keeping me in that place? Am I doing it? Is anything that I've done contributing to that? And sometimes that's a really good unlocking question, because sometimes, you know, we're contributing to some of our own suffering sometimes. So it's a good um, prompt, I think, in Lamentations, for us to look at ourselves and say, is there anything we're doing? Is there anything we need to acknowledge personally that we're doing? 
And then finally, in the book of Lamentation, although it's this big diatribe of anguish, there's moments of hope built into it. And particularly, the narrator sets out all this stuff and says that Jerusalem wasn't living the way it should be. It was, you know, unclean. It wasn't a city that wasn't living right. It's got all this really emotive language in it. But then it says, but remember, you're the virgin daughter of Zion. Remember, the story doesn't have to stop there. Remember, all of that stuff did go wrong. All of that stuff wasn't the way it should be. All of that pain of being exiled to Babylon isn't the way the world should be. But that doesn't have to be the thing that defines us totally. We can include that in our story as the Jewish people, but it doesn't have to be the thing that fully defines us. Actually, we are the virgin daughter of Zion. Actually, we are um, clean, you know, using the language of unclean and clean in, in that story. Actually, it's okay. That doesn't need to be the thing that completely defines us. And I guess that's an interesting thought, isn't it? And back to the story of Joseph. I guess Joseph had been thrown in a well. He'd been deserted by his family. He'd been virtually killed. He'd been sold into human traffic four times, sold into slavery. He must have gone through this process of lamenting that, lamenting the pain and suffering of that. But he must have also got to the point where he said, this doesn't necessarily need to define the rest of my life. This doesn't need to be the thing that completely defines me. And we're going to go on in, so I won't talk about this, but in future weeks to look at the rest of the story of Joseph. And it has its ups and downs still in it, but it's definitely a story where he's included that as part of his story, but it isn't the thing that completely defines him. He goes on to be the second in command in the, in the Egyptian empire to the pharaoh, the prime minister. He includes that pain and that lamentation in his story, but he doesn't make it the thing that completely defines him. And I think that's true for us. As we're lamenting, we've got that invitation. I think God's got two invitations to us in the midst of this, that he's really prepared to sit with us in that pain, in that suffering, even in the moments where we feel like he's distant. And secondly, there's always the opportunity that at the end of that sentence, it's a comma, not a full stop. It doesn't need to be the thing that completely defines us. We can include it in our story, but not have it completely define our story. So I'm, I'm going to stop there, but I'm going to leave a moment to pause. The things I would sort of say in, in conclusion are, one, if we're in that place where we feel distant from God or we feel pain or suffering, I think lamenting about that, crying out, saying that's not the way we expected life to be is completely fine. I think secondly, as a community, we probably need to make sure we leave space for that so that people can do that safely and there's space for people to be genuinely honest. And thirdly, there's always that invitation to all of us that whatever it is we're going through doesn't need to be the thing that completely defines us. We can include it in our story, but it doesn't have to be the defining feature of our lives. So I'm going to just leave a moment for us just to pause, for you to pause and reflect, for me to reflect. You might be somebody who's sitting here this morning and thinking, I'm in the place of feeling distant from God, or I've got loads of doubts, or I feel in pain at the moment. I think there's an invitation to just, you can be as honest as you like about that. That is just part of being a human being, isn't it? You might be somebody that's thinking, I'm supporting somebody who's going through all of that. And what's your role? Is your role to solve problems for them or is your role to sit and be alongside them in that process? Or you might be somebody that's responsible for the culture of our community together. What's your job in making this a space where everybody can be honest and lament and actually um, go through that process in a safe way. So I'm just going to leave a moment just of silence for us just to 
um, think about those things. Lord God, thank you for being a God that we're allowed to be honest with. Thank you for being a God that sits with us in the midst of doubt, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of emptiness. Lord, we want to be a hopeful people, a people that cry out when things aren't the way we expected them to be, aren't the way we would like life to be, a people that want to hope for a different future. Lord, thank you for being a God that sits with us in the midst of all of that. Amen.